0: You know exactly what we're here for and what it's all about. This woman has more than jewelry. Well, did you ever take a good look at her, um... Certainly. They're all right, aren't they? As far as I'm concerned, her whole sex appeal is in that safe. Darling, remember, you are Gaston Monescu. You are a crook. I want you as a crook. I love you as a crook. I worship you as a crook. Steal, swindle, rob. Oh, but don't become one of those useless, good-for-nothing gigolos.
1: Welcome to Season 3 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1923, and Tim Brayton joins us to discuss Rosita. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Hi. Welcome, everyone. We are here again with Tim Brayton. Tim needs no introduction. If you've listened to either of the two most obscure seasons of this obscure podcast, you know Tim. He's been on the episodes The Doll. And earlier than that, if anyone remembers the Mummy Ma experience,
0: you're our test subject for that case. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be back. Glad to help you inaugurate season three. Glad to be part of this journey again. And very sad to be reminded of Mummy Ma, the bitter and the sweet, you know?
1: (laughs) Uh, Mostly the bitter. So. The big thing has happened. Ernst Lubitsch, as of December 1922, has set sail. He is now a very enthusiastic participant in the Hollywood film
0: industry. Hurrah! And we are all the richer for it. One hates to be parochial, but like, there's a definite immediate leap forward that happens when he comes to the United States, but we'll talk about that, I'm sure.
1: Speaking of that, yeah, before I get into like some background behind this film, Tim, you've been following along with the retrospective of this podcast. So you're in a fairly unique position to talk about Ernst Lubitsch's development as an artist
0: in Berlin. And my homework for this episode was that I've watched every extant Lubitsch in Berlin film, as well as the not precisely extant Di Flamma, which is, as you've talked about, sort of half a movie and half of a slideshow. Yes, I've been keeping up. The evolution has been fascinating to behold because it keeps feeling like there's this, he's about to become the Lubitsch that we know and love from the sound movies. And then he's like, but also, you guys, what if I make another melodrama about a queen? (laughs) It's like, well, don't do that. You could not do that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The irony that you've been pointing out in your Letterbox reviews of these, that how odd it is in With 100 Years of Hindsight, which is a different point of view, that he became most known for the films of his that perhaps are some of the most difficult to get through now.
0: Yes. Those historical melodramas are just very, I mean, they're very polished. They have a lot of good production design and you can tell the money was spent on them. But dramatically, they're just not there. They're just not interesting mm. stories. They're very confusingly told, especially, I would say, Madame Dubarry, which is just a kind of mishmash of scenes and characters. So it has always been to me gratifying to when he sort of swerves back into and now a comedy, even when those comedies are the sort of weird, small little Shakespeare riffs that absolutely nobody in the world who isn't involved with this podcast has ever seen.
1: I will say I've watched both of them twice now because of doing due diligence as a host and Romeo and Juliet in the Snow, I think is it grew on me in the second viewing. It's a delightful little thing. But yeah, just the fact that like eight people have seen that (laughs) and Madame DuBerry is the single, I think, inarguably most significant film of his whole career. It blows the mind.
0: It's sad. It really, I mean, it's he had a good career, the career that path that he took that went through the Madame DuBerry's and the summer runs. Obviously, he had to make those movies to get to where we are now, which is Hollywood is interested. Hollywood's like, you seem like you can spend a lot of money on movies and we have a lot of movies to spend. We should work together.
1: Exactly. One little aside I have is for the Wildcat. Again, that slightly bewildered me that that made no impression. But Lubitsch actually himself, that film was a bomb. Chalked that film's failure up to just post-war Germany not being in the mood for uh, satires of militarism. And I'm like, that makes sense.
0: That's true. I can see that. I mean, obviously, the biggest observation I would have to make is just that the gap between the serious movies and the movies that are even a little bit funny is so stark, and I think that really became clear to me with The Loves of Pharaoh, which is, I think, positioning itself as being another one of his big costume dramas, but it's also a lot sillier. It's goofy. And I think knowingly, so I don't think if it didn't have the Paul Wegener performance, I'm not sure that I would have figured that out but that is clearly a silly performance Mm -hmm. and it sort of unlocked the movie for me as being like this is a lark it's not like trying to present this really heavy historical text and it's just so clear that he's better at silliness
1: I really agree. And the film kind of pounded me in. More specifically, Emil Yannings pounded me into submission in that movie when he pops back up from the dead as a raving, raving popper. I mean, Anya was sitting next to me and I was like, What?
0: He's back. <laughs> you got to hand it to the despot, you know? The hair and makeup department was really, really serving Emil Yannings well when he comes back from the dead and has that like frizzy situation going on on the top of his head. It's delightful.
1: So Rosita, I mean, Lubitsch moves to Hollywood, and as has been mentioned probably a dozen times so far on this show. And it's actually on the invitation of Mary Pickford, who wants him to make a vehicle for her. And at first it's supposed to be Faust. And then unceremoniously, he's told it's not going to be Faust. It's going to be another film. Dorothy Vernon of Haddon Hall. And Lubitsch was aghast when he read the script. Apparently, I don't know where this comes from. It's probably from like Charles Rocher, who gives a lot of the good quotes during this period. But apparently he said, there are too many Kveens and not enough kvins in the script. And thought that Pickford would be overshadowed by another character. And he suggested Rosita, the working title, The Street Singer, which is the film we ended up getting. And... The film's afterlife is as interesting as the film's life, where at the time it was released to great acclaim. Mary Pickford was incredibly, despite being, you know, there's a lot of falling outs during the film, That apparently, you know, Lubitsch was not used to not being the sole dictator of his movies. And Pickford was not used to Lubitsch's working style. They clashed, but they were both very complimentary at the time. Pickford apparently loved it, but grew to hate the film over the years and basically tried to have it buried decades later. And that's part of why the film was in such dire straits that the current restoration is probably the best it'll ever look. And even that is very clearly they did a lot with a little.
0: The restoration is extraordinary. I assume it's only been restored the one time. I actually had an opportunity to see this film in 2019 in a restored version. So I presume it was the same restoration, but it's extraordinary looking given what the material was, which was basically a just horribly battered print from the Soviet Union of all places. But it is still, there's a lot of places where you can just kind of see the light, like pulsing bright and dark. Like water damage. Yeah. That's just where we are. It's literally a 100-year-old movie. And it's just a miracle that we can watch it in a more or less satisfying format.
1: Yeah. And there's been a few kind of extra touches that Dave Kerr goes into this in our later episode because he was responsible for heading up the restoration and things like the nighttime scene, which I, is just gorgeous, endlessly gorgeous. This moonlit scene, the kind of bow hand painting was inferred based on a note and things like even the song lyrics were lost. So Kerr had to rewrite the song. Oh,
0: wild. He did a good job.
1: He did. I bought it as Lubitsch.
0: I have now seen it twice and both times I was like, what a wonderful, pretty song that was. I had no idea that was a fabrication from now. That night scene with the torches is just, to me, one of the moments of this film. I'm just like, this is...
1: The real, we're not in Berlin anymore
0: moment. He's really getting to play with the toy box, to use the metaphor from the doll. He is absolutely getting to explore things that the resources were just not there for, which isn't to say that they're better because they have more money. I mean, I still think at least a couple of his Berlin films are better than this, but it is tangible just how much more support he has from like the physical production side of things.
1: Yeah, he really took to the American cinematographers and basically the tradition of quality. there. He took full advantage of the expertise of all the technicians involved where, I mean, Theodore Sparko was the cinematographer on most of his Berlin stuff, and I think they do stunning work, but they didn't have the incredibly experienced crews. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the training. They didn't have the crews necessarily and the experience and the infrastructure to do what they do seemingly effortlessly here.
0: And I mean, that's the thing about early Hollywood. It's very easy to say it was factory filmmaking because it absolutely was like there's just no two ways about it. This was formulized in many ways. The scripts are formulaic. The way they work is sort of very industrial. It's not really art at this point. But at the same time, this is a medium where you can say on Monday morning, you know, it would be cool if we had a chateau that had eight rooms and each one of the rooms to <laughs> X, Y, and Z. And on Thursday, you have that set. That is an affordance of this form of filmmaking that just does not exist elsewhere. And it's an affordance that I think suits Lubitsch's storytelling very well.
1: It is interesting, too, kind of suddenly seeing the things that now have Due to this podcast, I've associated with the Templehof studios. I know that Loves of the Pharaoh and Deflam were filmed in the new EFA studios, but the, up until then, it was basically used the same sets over and over. And you can really see that if you like watch Carmen and then watch Madame Duberry, there's the two virtually identical town squares, <laughs> Paris and Seville, look weirdly similar. But a lot of the kind of tropes of production design and even the specific pattern of lighting the Germans use have just been swapped out. It's like a palette swap for a different toolkit that, yeah, clearly he takes to.
0: You know, I think to me, at least what seems like the broadest scale thing to say about the movie, particularly in light of sort of our brief conversation at the start of where he's coming from. And the first time I saw Rosita was at that point, the oldest Lubitsch film I'd ever seen. One of only like two Lubitsch sounds I'd ever seen now actually seeing it in this context of here is this very well regarded very successful german filmmaker coming over to hollywood it changes a lot for me about what sort of what the movie is and is doing and one of the big things that to me at least that seems really striking you know we talked about he makes good comedies some great comedies not only great comedies but good comedies to great comedies and bad historical dramas like that is my summary of lubitsch the berlin years we have here this just incredible free for all of tones. And that's really what struck me when I first saw it. And it struck me even more seeing it again in the context of all those Berlin films. It is a comedy. It's a sex farce. But it's also a historical costume drama. Mm -hmm. It's also a escape from the evil king thriller. It's got so much going on. And it looks effortless, like to me at least, the switching back and forth, like now we're going to laugh, now we're going to be very sad, now we're going to be very tense, now we're going to be swooning at the romance of it. This all just seems to be happening very casually. Like it doesn't feel to me like there's any real code switching going on, like there's any sort of, now it's a different kind of movie. It's just always the movie that it is. And sometimes it's funnier and sometimes it's sadder. And it's just extraordinary to me because A, there seemed to be such a clear bifurcation between those two things in his German films. And also, he just frankly didn't seem very good at one of those two things in his German <laughs> films, and suddenly he's gotten very good at it.
1: It really feels like he found the way to maybe take the parts of his Turkish historical dramas that could work and apply them in a tonal strategy that just works effortlessly. Like. Suddenly he's a master of tone, apparently. Um, Right. The ending, the last half hour on the viewing I had last night threw me for a loop because the first time I watched this film, which was, you know, four or five months ago, I was certain that the film was going for a different ending than what it got. Right. I was certain that Don Diego's character was probably dead because I was so used to all these, you know, Escape the Evil King movies ending the same way, tragically, that this is going to end up being a big melodrama. And I was prepared to be a bit let down by that. But no, it's this perfectly handled ending where everyone comes away happy, including Weirdly, the king. I mean, he comes away a little henpecked, but like the <laughs> henpecked by the film's best character. Um, exactly. And so I was shocked. I was actually shocked that Don Diego lives, that, you know, he and Rosita get a cool new chateau to live in and that everything's just fine. And my second viewing, knowing that the film as a whole just struck me as even more bubbly and lighthearted than I'd even let myself interpret it as the first time.
0: It's very easy to assume that there's going to be some sort of like tragic stakes involved. Because of when the movie comes out, because of what the movie is, its genre, I'd say, is very hard to pin down, even by the standards of 23. Like, you have this kind of sex comedy, political satire, historical thriller situation. Like, it's tough to know what your expectations for that should be. It does feel like the balance is weighted towards comedy. And maybe that's just because we know where his career is going to head. But it does feel like, overall, it's a comedy that has these other elements in it, rather than, like ever truly like running the risk of like, no, these people are going to die horribly and that will be where we leave them. The
1: melodrama is all kind of mock melodrama, isn't it? Like you have, you know, I mean, the great situation at the end where Rosita's is pretending to be heartbroken in the jail and then as soon as Don Diego leaves, she laughs. That's kind of the film's register.
0: No, yeah, for sure. It's very playful.
1: The treatment of the King character, I think, is a good bellwether for this, where, you know, you have the Emile Yannings trilogy <laughs> of increasingly <laughs> frightful despotic Kings and in two of the cases, he... Kind of wins out in the end when he gets a Pyrrhic victory. But in this one, I was, again, I was so ready for this king to reveal himself as even more fearful, more and more fearful. But no, he just throughout the film, it's like a steady descent into him being completely impossible to take seriously. And Kind of a goofy, lovable presence
0: in the end. Yeah. And to me, like my takeaway from the first time I watched the film was that the king was the like the character that Lubitsch was just handing the movie to. I don't feel that way quite as strongly after my second doing. I think it's much better balanced. But I do think the king is a really great Lubitsch character. And I'm here using Lubitsch character in the sense of like, I'm using hindsight. I'm saying we know where he's going. We know what his 30s career looks like. There are elements of a political satire here, like the whole reason that Rosita sort of comes under the king's microscope in the first place is because she's singing this very pointedly satiric song about what a terrible despot he is. But it's never a film about the king is this vicious exploiter using his political power. It's always about look at this lumpy old man who wants to have sex all the time. Like that's kind of (laughs) who the king is. And it does make him a sort of an endearing character, even though he's unambiguously the villain. We are at no point want him to win anything. But he is this kind of just like an ugly old man who gets horny. And isn't that kind of sad and humorous and pathetic and all these things? That really, I think, does sort of redefine what kind of melodrama we are talking about. here. Because he is a threat. He's again, he's not someone we're mm-hmm. rooting for. He's a very hissable villain in ways, but he's very unthreatening.
1: He's ineffectual.
0: He's ineffectual. Perfect way to put it perfect way to
1: put it. I mean, the dynamic between him and the queen, who is just named the king and the queen or just named the king and the queen, which I love. But Irene Rich as the queen is, I think in the early runnings of this season, I have completely fallen in love with two actors, Irene Rich and Adolphe Manjou, who are the two most amused people I've ever seen on a film screen where at no point does she take anyone in the film or any conflict remotely seriously. And yet she is the single most effectual person in the entire film.
0: I think that's the reason why she gets we don't end on a shot of her, like of our four main characters. She's kind of like the fourth last one that we spend a moment with. But at the same time, she gets the last story beat. Mm-hmm. Like the last thing that happens is her. And then what we see are just like shots of the other characters, like sort of resigning themselves to the fact that the movie's over. But she sort of is the one whose voice ends the film. And I think that is very telling because as you say, she is absolutely kind of standing outside the film in a way. She's certainly standing outside the conflict. Like she doesn't think there are any stakes here she doesn't take any of this seriously clearly doesn't take the king seriously and as you say just this, sort of standing at the whole movie with this clear sense of self amusement which i think is something we're going to see come back and i hate to keep turning this into the and then later i feel this is kind of an archetype of the maurice chevalier character mm-hmm. who we'll bring in later on the sense of the character is sort of so aware that they're in a frothy comic story that they're just enjoying the ride
1: and somehow in both of those cases they don't ever seem too amused by themselves by half. They're just amused by the situation. She actually reminds me a bit of um, the Carol Lombard character in To Be or Not To Be, where just all the interpersonal conflict she's just apart from. I mean, the difference is that the Carol Lombard character is the person creating the conflict that she's aloof from, which is a different dynamic. But I mean, she gets all the best dialogue in this film, I'd be Rich. Her intertitles do, at least. (laughs) All these little moments where so much is communicated by just her, for example, looking at Rosita. And just like grinning in a sly way and entire sentences are communicated just by that. It's lovely.
0: Yeah, it's a very sophisticated sort of characterization. It's very innuendo heavy. It's very knowing, which again, is I think part of the thing that we we're already seeing Lubitsch playing with that in Berlin. And he's, of course, going to keep developing it in the United States. He's making stories for sophisticated adults who don't need to have everything spelled out. I feel like this character is really an embodiment of that because we know what she's thinking. We know what her position is on this, even though she never has to tell us right again it's not really her story in a way like she is the most extractable part of the core four characters but she is i think in that way sort of our analog like our audience surrogate
1: she might be the single most archetypical Lubitsch character in the film and i think well her and the king both really are i mean i think the king too is he feels more similar to the king from the merry widow (laughs) than he does to any of like email yanning's kings where he's just he's a figure of ridicule I mean, the difference here is that he actually does pose a danger briefly, but in Merry Widow, there's never any sense. Even when the king and The Merry Widow says, I'll have you hanged, we don't believe him for a second. Exactly. In this one, we do for a little bit. One thing I found fascinating in people's reactions to this film, and I've seen this in contemporary reviews of it, and I mean contemporary to our lifetimes, not from when the film was released. When the film was released, it got great notices, but a criticism I see of the film from quite a few is that Pickford, especially, is a poor fit for Lubitsch, and- I mean, I thought she was great in this film, but I can't help but think that that might be because she is like a standard deviation or two outside of characters we expect in this period of Lubitsch, at least in the American period. She is not quite the archetype that tends to populate his movies of this sort.
0: I think that's very true. And I mean, obviously, we're talking about this on a Lubitsch podcast. If we were talking about this on a Pickford podcast, we could have an entirely different way into this movie because she is a major figure. She is a more major presence in international cinema in 1923 than Ernst Lubitsch is. I don't think that's even a debatable point. She's very, very powerful, one of the most powerful actors of the generation. She founded UA, a a great deal of power, a great deal of control. And so there is, I think, a sense in which she is a gravitational force, regardless of what she is or is not doing, just the fact that she's in it. Like it becomes a Mary Pickford Mm -hmm. film. And Mary Pickford films mean something very different than Ernst Lubitsch films do. But at the same time, this is a strange Mary Pickford film. Like, one of the things that we sort of didn't touch on, you know, she, for reasons unknown, turned on this film later in her career. But to a certain extent, I kind of think you can feel like that happened almost immediately. Because one of the things that happened when this film was new, she was dabbling in basically like mature woman roles and not mature women in the sense of like, you know, she's some sort of grand duchess in her 80s. But like, her thing was playing girls like not in the derogatory sense like children girls which is weird to watch in the present day but you know that's what she was doing she was playing young characters and here she's playing sophisticated character politically conscious character obviously a very like sexually self-aware character so it's a new kind of role for her she immediately walks away from that like post Rosita Mm -hmm. this is not the new face of Pickford she goes back to her little like you know innocence and ringlets deal until I believe the sound era, really. I take the criticism that she's a strange fit for Lubitsch and that she doesn't quite fit any of his archetypes. But I also think that she's quite good in this film. Mm -hmm. And I think she's quite good in ways that Lubitsch is taking advantage of as a director. And I don't want to see her replaced. I mean, if that's like the criticism people are saying, like, she shouldn't have been in this film, someone else should have. Well, A, that could not have conceivably happened because that's not what was going on, you know, financially at this point. But I like her in it. I think that what she's doing, she's trying for something new. She's trying to redefine what is a Mary Pickford, essentially. And, and the definition would not prove to be Mary Pickford is the brassy heroine of Ernst Lubitsch films. But I think she's making a good faith effort to see what that would be like for her as a performer.
1: And I feel like her character bounces off the film's tone in such interesting and ways that feel like the film has been designed around her in a productive way. Like, let's take her family. I mean, if the knock on her is that she doesn't fit like the champagne fizziness that we'd expect from a Luvich heroine. I mean, look at her character's family. Her character's family are a bunch of country bumpkins. (laughs) And they're portrayed as that. There's a ton of humor based on her family's quote-unquote ruggedness, low-classness compared to the aristocrats. I mean, one of my favorite comic beats of the film that the film hits a number of times to increasingly great effect is that the servants of the king are so far in station above the people they're serving that they are revolted by this family who's like, you know, immediately moves in and starts doing boat games with tables and hanging socks to dry in these palaces. So her character feels like the writing team behind this film would have written this film knowing it's for Mary Pickford. So the family is designed around her character and the humor that comes from her character's milieu works with Mary Pickford, I think.
0: I think so. I think that incongruity is, I mean, it's part of all comedy, but it's certainly part of this film's particular approach to comedy is that it's strange for her to like intrude into this sort of, I mean, set in Spain, but feels very Ruritanian in all other possible ways, like this kind of just European fanciness to be infiltrated by this, like, Mary Pickford waif, in a way. But I mean, even beyond that, I mean, I think that's a very good and true point. Even just like in small little places where I think she's a good fit for what Lubitsch is up to, there's a particular moment in this film, the question of what is the Lubitsch touch is... Thorny and complicated, and not to be just dived into for no good reason. But one of the things that I think it includes is the sense of like kind of subtlety and glancing humor, and this sort of approach to joke setting where it's not like a gag, it sort of sneaks up on you and like jumps out at you in a way that you're not expecting. And there's a great example to me of a very Lubitsch feeling joke, which is when she's been left alone in a room, a small parlor, a salon of some sort, with a table of snacks on it. Yes. Yeah. And so you know where I'm going with this. There's this incredible blocking where she starts off screen, walks across the screen, departs the screen, comes back, does this again. And she's clearly pacing back and forth next to the snack table because she wants to grab one, but she's not sure if she can. Mm -hmm. And then finally, after she crosses like three times, she just like snatches one and eats it very quickly. And she's like looking around while she's eating it. And that is to me a perfect, perfect comedy beat. And I think she's selling it. And it's obviously a great beat because Lubitsch is conceiving of it the certain way and blocking it the certain way. But I think she has completely figured out what he's trying to do there and she matches what he's going for. That is to me the justification that Mary Pickford needs. She knew what Lubitsch was trying to do and she tried to make it happen.
1: I'm always trying to avoid this, falls outside of my bandwidth for expectations about artist X. So therefore, it's a weaker artist X instead of this is different and let's analyze the differences. <laughs> let's, let's celebrate the differences. Although sometimes, you know, if a certain German director tries to make a two and a half hour long costume epics, maybe that's a difference that isn't good.
0: I mean, there is this is different and therefore interesting. And this is different. And the thing about it that is interesting is that it confirms why you're good at one thing.
1: Exactly. Yes. We
0: can come up with many examples of that.
1: I always hesitate. Like I have a habit of saying a transitional thing. But I
0: think actually there are
1: elements of this that feel still like the Lubitsch of the Berlin era that I found really interesting. There's one specific scene that stuck out to me as like, oh, this is something that in Hollywood you would probably not do. Little kind of stretches of continuity, like the scene where Don Diego and Mary Pickford are in the cell. It's this lovely scene where, you know, they're placed next to each other, sitting handcuffed and they make a little deal. They shake hands in a way that is patently impossible (laughs) based on the blocking of the wide shot. The blocking of the close up and wide are specifically made with no other shot as a reference, right? The insert of the hands is made to be the best version of that insert you can bind. The wide shot of the two of them is made to be the best version of that wide shot. If they had been close enough to shake hands, the wide shot would be compromised. So what's the correct answer? The obvious answer is to make them both incompatible. That's what Lubitsch does. And I think even the Lubitsch of the marriage circle would probably not have stretched that in the same way. But those little bits where the screen direction is not fully in that classic Hollywood cinema milieu, it hasn't fully ossified with Lubitsch yet. I find that exciting.
0: No, it it for sure is. I would need to spend, you know, days just kind of revisiting films from the early 20s. Because 23 is, we're in a mature Hollywood by 23. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it did take some time for the rules themselves to ossify. I mean, certainly if you go just two or three years back from this, I think that would not have felt as much like a violation of the rules as I think it does here. I think by 23, it does feel like that's something we're not doing in Hollywood filmmaking.
1: If that exact same thing had happened in like Romeo and Juliet in the Snow, I promise I would never have noticed.
0: Sure, exactly. That makes perfect sense. And I do think there is certainly a sense of, it does have a kind of lingering version of what he's up to in Berlin. It does have that sort of looseness. I think it will be curious to sort of go forward through his career and seeing like how quickly, because by the time he gets to the sound era, he's defining, I think, what American film aesthetic looks like especially in those early sound films like he's one of the early people who cracked sound in hollywood like i think that's just conventional wisdom and it'll be curious to sort of see how that evolves moving through like at what point does he like lose the Berlinness, or does he just sort of continue transmogrifying it into something that fits within this american context and i don't have an answer for that because i mean this is the start of my journey to lubich in silent american cinema so
1: I was surprised at how, I mean, there's a fairly large gap between this film and the marriage circle in terms of style, where starting with that, I feel like his style, the bandwidth of it shrunk considerably with that film. And again, in a way that, I mean, that led to the best years of his career because within that bandwidth, he did such unbelievable things, but with a few very specific exceptions. That type of way of moving through rooms, of having characters move through rooms, especially the marriage circle feels like a corner turned in a way Rosita feels like he's still rounding the bend. Again, that's a very results-based way to look at it, where, I mean, Rosita could have been easily the film where we'd be looking back now saying, well, the rest of his career is Rosita. But I guess it just worked out that way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, obviously, we always have to be very careful about making those sorts of historically deterministic arguments. Exactly. But I I will say, you know, comparing to the later Lubitsch style, certainly the way that rooms, we have characters moving through rooms is like, that is Lubitsch style in a way. Like, that's the sort of cornerstone of it. It's all doors. Oh, it's so much doors. And it's facilitated, I think, by working in this Hollywood industry, whereas I sort of joked earlier, like you can say, I need a door here and you will have a small army of technicians getting a door there by the end of lunch. And that, I think, really facilitates this kind of very room-oriented way of making films. That sounds weird and silly and dismissive to put right. it that way, but he turned it into art. Like, no one yeah. has ever filmed the inside of rooms better than Ernst Lubitsch. And we don't quite have that yet Rosita. And one thing that we have in Rosita that is certainly not a bad thing, I mean, I think it's, they're phenomenal, we have a lot of crowd scenes. And crowd scenes are not something that I necessarily associate with later Lubitsch, really. hmm But I have been growing to associate with early Lubitsch, like a lot of his films, especially those historical melodramas, often the only time that I'll be like, that's a good shot is some sort of really elaborately staged crowd sequence. Mm -hmm. And we get some fabulous, fabulous crowd scenes here, especially when it's Mary Pickford singing her satiric song about how the king is a tyrant. Yeah. And just the way that she's positioned in a way that feels very natural, but it's clearly very artificial because like she's Mary Pickford. We need to see her. There needs to be no doubt who the subject of this frame is. So they've kind of like built this like wall platform thingy for her to stand on. So she can be surrounded like 270, 300 degrees by a crowd milling around, but she's still clear in the frame and she's still very clearly the center point. It's a shot composition that gets used several times in the film and it's miraculous like it's such a good shot but it's also not something that I think of as being like Lubitsch so I don't want to say he had to lose that to become Lubitsch because I think it's great but I think he would eventually sort of move away from that kind of thing
1: yeah the only major crowd scene I'm sure that there's like a couple more but the one crowd scene that stuck in my mind in his sound career is the one from *The Merry Widow with the pseudo Bubsy Berkeley scene in that movie sure. which is lovely I was going to actually point out the way that set is designed around her is brilliant where you have the, you know, Christinium, the audience around her, and then you have a stairway behind her that's filled with people. So you get a stack Mm -hmm. of people around her. It's like turns her into the center of town. It's lovely.
0: I mean, even like the angle, Mm -hmm. it's from a slightly high angle, but not one that it feels like we're looking down. It just feels more like we're sort of on a perch. Mm -hmm. It's just a fabulous shot.
1: That whole nighttime sequence. I mean, we've mentioned it before, but I think Charles Rocher's work in this is stunning. And It was the least surprising thing when I immediately was like, I remember that name. And he's the sunrise guy. And he's also one of the founding members of the ASC, one of the most famous cinematographers of his era. The guy is, I mean, if you look at his filmography, he did the first Showboat, which is a, it's a massively overachieving (laughs) musical visually in lots of ways. Um, He shot Siegfried Follies. He shot endless films that are just gorgeous. But this one. He mixes with Lubitsch in such an interesting way. And I think to me, I mean, the clear height of that is the nighttime carnival sequence, which Mm -hmm. is just spectacular.
0: I know you mentioned this in your letterbox review, so I hate to steal from you, but uh, it really is extraordinary how we've arrived at movies that can render night. Yes. Night actually looks like night, doesn't need a title card. (laughs) And it's like what a dark and mysterious and sexy night because of how like sort of foggy and dark and shadowy everything is. But also you can see everything. Because it's a movie. Yes. We're not film noir. We're not like in a German expression of horror film. And that balance of like you feel the dark while not actually seeing a dark frame. thats Hollywood, baby. That's what you get. And honestly, I think this might be my
1: favorite nighttime scene in any Lubitsch film visually. I mean, I think I kind of am sad that he never worked with Rush Air again. I understand why, because he was Pickford's guy. But I don't think any Lubitsch film since this, except maybe to be or not to be, has made such great use of kind of heavily directional, low-key setups. It's really stark at points.
0: I mean, it's certainly the most technically accomplished of Lubitsch's night scenes I can think of.
1: I mean, I think the tinting does help. I mean, to me, one of the biggest losses of the sound era was that tinting fell out of folk.
0: hundred percent. hundred percent.
1: I'm just like, how did, was there a collective insanity going on? <laughs> <laughs> Why would you stop tinting movies?
0: Mm-hmm. You have the
1: ability. According to the Keating book on Hollywood lighting, it was largely because they needed to standardize lab practices and tinting always had to be done at the print stage because you couldn't like tint the negative and then copy that because you had one chrome to copy, right? So they wanted to basically remove that link from the chain, make it easier to just mass produce these things without having to deal with like tint quality control. So it's just stopped tinting, which is such a shame.
0: It makes sense. Like it's part of the overall move towards like it's always an industry. It's an industry as early as like 1916. It becomes a major industry, capital I, like the factory format really kicks in with the sound era. And I think, you know, that's just one of the realities.
1: This might be something that I cut because it's such a tangent, but I think that it's very useful to see virtually any development in like major changes in visual languages through this lens of skepticism, right? Things don't happen because they're necessarily an improvement. They happen in Hollywood or in any large industry, basically, because they're economically advantageous, right? So- I don't know how much you follow certain YouTube video essayists, but I watched a high-profile video essay recently where they talked about widescreen in the middle. (laughs) They used a specific phrasing that bugged me. They said, in the mid-century, when widescreen became available and filmmakers started using it, and I'm like, no, no, (laughs) it ah. was enforced. It was thrust upon. I mean, have you seen Brigadoon? (laughs) It's like, A, have you seen the big trail?
0: We were doing widescreen in the 30s and everyone was like, well, this is weird. Let's not do this again.
1: Remember when Abel Gantz tried it with three screens and it was the greatest thing ever and then nobody did it because it was impossible to to, to to mass produce.
0: (laughs) My dissertation is more or less explicitly about, you know, we need to stop talking about technological determinism as being like like, move towards the final form of the art. It's like at a given point in time, here's what they had the means to do and would do. And let's just talk about it as that. Are you saying that the singularity, the endpoint of film, is not
1: 239 to 1, F2, anamorphic, color graded to look like Kodak 500T film stock with a peak nit brightness of 60%? You're saying that's not the singularity?
0: I'm saying it's very obviously the case that the singularity is Diego Calva having a vision of Avatar while watching Singing in the Rain.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When talking about this film and Lubitsch's Berlin career... It's so interesting to me because I do wonder whether Lubitsch was a artist who had a combination of talent and like ambition and luck to kind of, because of historical forces, get a style that was maybe the one that could have worked for him, which is, you know, basically the style that from the marriage circle onwards. Or whether could there have been like a Lubitsch who kept making increasingly great versions of the Wildcat? I do wonder about that.
0: I feel like the answer has to be yes, because, I mean, when his films in Berlin are working, they're working really well. Mm -hmm. Wildcat's great. Oyster Princess is great. Dahl is, I think, a straight up masterpiece. Yeah. He's making good films. I mean, I think there's the question of if he keeps working in Berlin, does he keep making those historical melodramas? But of course, he comes to Hollywood where they certainly know how to make a historical melodrama and he escaped it here. But I do think given his proclivities, given the kinds of stories he's telling, and he's already started beginning to show this. I mean, he really likes going to the fancy places. I mean, we see this in Oyster Princess. We see this in I Don't Want to Be a Man. You know, films where it's like he likes going into the salons and he likes going into like the palaces, such. And I think in the world in 1923, the place where you can do that And that's just like how movies get made is Hollywood, because you have not just had a massive war crippling every single film industry other than the Hollywood industry, essentially. So you still have the full set of resources. You still have this industrial base that's supporting the filmmaking. You have all of these people who've been doing this for 10 years at this and have really just begun honing their skill and can really get out there and make stuff. I don't want to say that like every filmmaker is better when they have access to Hollywood money and Hollywood resources, I think Lubitsch's interest in rooms, his interest in the upper class, his interest in a kind of like opulence of life. And I think that's true in so many of his movies, even if they're not like about rich people poor in the way like an MGM film is, they're still about this kind of sophistication, this kind of appreciation of nice things. And I think that's just enabled by the way Hollywood makes films, which is to sort of prefer this kind of lavishness. And I think if he hadn't come to Hollywood, he would have continued making the films he was making, and I think they would have been very good. But I do think he is someone who uniquely benefits from having access to that kind of just like very well-honed craftsmanship.
1: Because this film is still feels much smaller than like Loves of the Pharaoh, right? So when we talk about resources, we're not just talking about Size, you know, I mean, Mm. Loves of the Pharaoh was enabled by the circumstances, right? Where Loves of the Pharaoh, for example, was made in a very specific, unsustainable moment in history where inflation had led to the abundance of cheap labor. Mm -hmm. That's why you can have 3,000 extras, but still sets that look a little bit more rickety than this.
0: And it's (laughs) not a good thing, it's not a bad thing. It's just like this is what Hollywood was best Mm. at in this period. And he's someone who can really take advantage of that. And I mean, as far as the historical determinism question, it's just. This is a thing that's near and dear to me because of my academic research right now. People will use whatever resources are available to them in the place that they're making movies. And Lubitsch in Berlin has a certain set of resources. Lubitsch in Hollywood has a different set of resources. And I do think it changes the movies he makes. Not in some he had to make these movies Way I think he's now seeing paths that were open to him because he came in Hollywood and he's choosing to take those paths.
1: It's a very good way to put it. It's a very complex system of converging circumstances and proclivities of people that gets filmmakers to where they are. To me, cinematographers are an interesting example of this. You can really use any below the line person with creative input where it's very tempting to like watch the work of a cinematographer, for example, and go, wow, you're Barry Ackroyd. You do choppy handheld from eight angles and you tend to shoot films set in certain wars in the 21st century. And if one were to ask Ackroyd and they have, he would basically go, no, I got hired for this one film. And then someone saw it, want me to do that again. I don't like doing that better than other things. That's just what the jobs I get.
0: I have heard the exact same sentiment or very similar sentiment from Daniel Pearl, who has shot a number of horror films, probably notably both the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films, the 74 and the 2003, he shot both of them. And apparently he really wants to not shoot horror movies and like he thinks uh. that would be something he could do he has ideas but no one will hire him because he's the guy who shoots horror movies and that's that's a material thing that happens in the world Is like <laughs> you have a skill set people exploit that skill set and you're stuck there in a way
1: it's interesting to this to lupich too because one question that i've heard uh, surprisingly conflicting thoughts on from previous guests is the question of, for example, was Lubitsch fully happy with just making the types of comedies he was making? Or did he actually have a desire to be taken more seriously as a dramatic filmmaker? And I think that's kind of two thoughts wrapped in one, too. So, for example, I guess last season mentioned that Lubitsch made the argument that Lubitsch actually did quite want to make dramas as well as comedies, and hence Broken Lullaby, aka The Man I Killed which was his only, I think, straight drama of the whole sound era. And to a certain extent, Student Prince in Old Heidelberg, which I've always seen as comic as it is dramatic, but I guess you could see it as tragic as it ends sadly. And then others have made the argument that essentially he was moving in a direction tonally that he was pretty much happy with and kind of continued to push for in his own career. So the question of how that applies to Lubitsch has always been a weird enigma for me.
0: Obviously, none of us have access to the innermost heart of Ernst Lubitsch, who died until you know, AI can get 80 years ago. Exactly. I think we have this idea, it's a very splendid and romantic idea, but I also think it is not necessarily a true idea that anyone who is great at making movies, any great filmmaker, is necessarily someone whose soul burns with this kind of like artistic passion. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this on the last episode I was on. We know that Ernst Lubitsch was a good businessman. Like he got put in charge of production at Paramount because he was good at knowing what sort of movies made money. And he made movies that made money. And I'm not saying that was his only dream in the world was to make movies that make money. But I do think for me, at least, I don't think there's any evidence within the films themselves that he didn't believe in them. I mean, these sort of very frothy, sexy comedies from the 30s. You don't make films like that because you think they're trash. We can point to film directors who thought that comedy was beneath them. And then when they make a comedy, it's just absolute garbage. And that's not this. No, Like, I think he does believe in these things. Does he believe that it is a sacrifice of his art that he can't keep making Anna Boleyns for the next 20 years in Hollywood? I mean, maybe he did, but I don't think there's evidence for it. And I think it's assuming that Ernst Lubitsch had a certain level of, I am an artiste. Mm -hmm. I I don't know that that is borne out by what he did with his career. I think he was an artist. I think he was a great artist. But I think like a lot of those Hollywood people, he viewed himself as he was doing a job. And I mean, we hear this from a lot of these directors, like, well, it was my job Mm. and I happened to be Howard Hawks. So my job was done very (laughs) well or whatever. What was John Ford's line? It's a job of work.
1: Yeah. One thing that I think is at least partially borne out by certain things he said is that I think there was something he said in relation to to be or not to be, but I'm not sure. He wished that people would almost like give more credence to the type of films that he made. It isn't that he wanted to make more dramatic films, maybe that, but that, you know, again, I think this is reflected in his relative lack of public Legacy. I mean, he didn't make the Sight and Sound poll, not the discourse about the Sight and Sound poll, but he didn't make the Sight and Sound poll. And I think part of that is because, I mean, one is lack of consensus. I mean, there's like
0: four films of his that. What is the great Lubitsch film? I think it's an unresolved question, even though the answer is Trouble in Paradise.
1: Oh, it's, it's, sorry, I I, I, I thought <laughs> y- your pronunciation of "to be or not to be" was. Uh, no. <laughs> But exactly right. I mean, between the two of us, we have very different answers to that, and you know that makes it difficult to land on one. But I also think it's because, again, you made comedies, and when you are looking back eighty years on these comedies by the academic critical communities, those tend not to be taken quite as seriously as like the great operatic John Ford dramas.
0: They're obviously not, and I think this is one of the major major failures with film critics as a population and it is not a new problem it extends back to the start of film criticism as a discipline being unwilling to deal with comedy seriously and i can say from my own personal experience it's because it's harder to write about what makes something funny than what makes something sad Mm -hmm. like i can tell you quite readily why schindler's list is a sad movie i cannot tell you nearly so readily why 1941 is not a funny movie (laughs) It's tougher to talk about. And I do think there's this sort of weird hang up over, well, if it's pleasant, it must not be good. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a real attitude people have.
1: I think, too, there's another element that I actually, the only reason I keyed into this element was I happened to make a slightly trollish tweet about it and said, theaters are for comedies. Home viewing is for spectacle, right? It was me being a bit trollish, but (laughs) this is the second most hate DMs I've ever gotten over a tweet. People were really hung up on the comedy part, and that was what surprised me, because I think that there is this association people have with, you know, if it's comedy and it's especially a small scale chamber type comedy without a attached spectacle. I mean, you know, if it's not, what is it, that new The Lost World or something? You can get away with showing that in cinema, but obviously now in 2023, time flies. Small chamber comedies without spectacle attached, those are for home viewing. Those aren't cinema, right? These aren't theatrical, you know. Go to cinema see The Searchers. No shame, that that's an incredible film. But to me, that's always been an interesting hang up to of just comedy is for what we've agreed is the lesser exhibition medium,
0: if that makes sense. It's such a bizarre attitude to hold to me surely we've all had the experience. I hope, maybe we haven't. You're in a crowded theater or even a not so crowded theater and something amusing happens and maybe you're just like, huh. But then someone around you starts laughing and it's funnier. It's funnier when you see Mm -hmm. that stuff in a crowd. One time in my life have I seen the movie His Girl Friday in a theater with a crowd. Every time I've seen it, I mean, this was probably the 15th time I'd seen the movie. I've seen the movie so many times at home, love it, it's funny, it's hilarious. I don't laugh at it. I'm just sitting there like appreciating the construction of it and appreciating the elegance and perfection of it. It's funny as hell when you see it with a crowd because oh, the yeah. crowd's laughing at it. And I think that's a very real thing about comedies. And I think that diminishing that is just remarkably short-sighted to me and insulting to the art of comedy.
1: Nothing will probably ever top Napoleon. It's the best cinema experience of my life. But like, I still think the second best cinema experience of my life was Tony Erdman, seeing it at a festival premiere with an audience of at least 600 people. I've never seen anything like it. It was like a controlled collective group insanity. It was incredible.
0: I saw that movie at 10.30 p.m. in Telluride, Colorado, at like the end of a long festival day, and the audience was so punchy and loopy at that point. It was a great way to see that movie. If I can backtrack a little bit, there's another component to the why did Lubitsch's career go the direction it went. We know that he got brought into the States because of the success of his costume dramas and that he does sort of make costume drama-ish things. In the 20s, he's pretty much done by the sound era. I wonder to what degree, you know, he eventually makes his home at Paramount. Like that takes a little bit of time, but that's where he lands. The quintessential cluster of early 30s Lubitsch films where he sort of defines being Lubitsch. Is it Paramount? And I wonder if there was a certain pressure of Paramount already has a Cecil B. DeMille. Do we need mm. a second Cecil B. DeMille? Because he was kind of the German Cecil B. DeMille in a way in his Berlin years.
1: I have a very specific context to add there. It's in the Scott Eamon book. There's a set of correspondences between Lubitsch, the Warners, and the representatives, where essentially they want him to make a big movie. And his response is, I'll make a big movie if you give me the darn resources and get off my back, right? He's trying to get out of the contract at that point. He's just kind of humoring them. So although I think later on, most of his kind of more opulent films were MGM, too which is interesting. You can kind of see the difference between like the Paramount Love Parade and the MGM Merry Widow. There's a clear opulence going on in one, but it's never a big
0: epic. Exactly. You know, sort of still on the, something I thought of when you were talking about the Warner Brothers letter, making big movies takes more work. Working with four actors in a single fancy room set, you get to hang out with a small crew and a few actors. If you have to like maneuver dozens of extras around and a huge ass crew to like make sure that the extras are all in the right place, that's going to be less fun to make. I mean, it's it mm-hmm. seems to be more work. It's going to be more stress. I shouldn't say less fun. But so maybe that's also part of this question of like, what did he want his career to be?
1: And around this time, he would have seen A Woman of Paris, Chaplin's film. And that film made a massive impression on him, depending on who you ask. If you ask him, he did. But scholars have now kind of shaded that with the fact that *The Flamme is also a very small film. But I do think that, in my opinion, at least, he almost certainly saw it because he was working at United Artists. He would have seen it before shooting The Marriage Circle. And I mm-hmm. think that you can totally see <laughs> the influence on that.
0: And I mean, we don't think of it really this way. I mean, Chaplin, obviously huge filmmaker, huge artist, but we tend to think of that as being one of his sort of forgotten-ish features. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I learned recently, at the time that came out, that was like a big deal in the industry. Everyone was like a buzz with how that film presented its acting. I'm sure he would have seen it because it was apparently like a really big deal. And we sort of lost sight of that because it's not funny and Chaplin's not in it. And it was also not a hit.
1: No, it wasn't. Chaplin always saw that as one of his most disappointing failures, box office wise, at least, right? Because it didn't catch on. I think shocked up to just him not appearing in the film. And there is a title mm-hmm. card.
0: The title card is yeah. basically, this is not a comedy and I do not appear in this film, but I think <laughs> you'll like it anyway.
1: <laughs> and apparently, I mean, filmmakers loved it, but I... Lubitsch and Chaplin would have been actually basically co-workers at this point because they were mm-hmm. both working in United Artists. And so it seems that Lubitsch probably saw early cut screenings of it, which is kind of cool to imagine. You know, after he saw that, Lubitsch, he kind of continued his trajectory where after Loves of the Pharaoh before Flamme, he had said in some sort of trade journal that he was done with making big movies. He wanted to move into smaller films, but it almost seems like the direction that ended up taking felt influenced by A Woman of Paris. I mean, Even the casting of Adolf Manjou feels like a connection between those two, where he plays a very similar character in both.
0: I mean, he plays a very similar character in most of his movies.
1: He does. You know, I just realized that's him in Plastic Glory. I, for some reason, Mm -hmm. never put that together 30 years later, and the guy still has the same smile. It's lovely. Same smile, same mustache. Yeah, same mustache, except this time he's a horrible villain. Exactly. (laughs) And so, you know, after this, He basically doesn't get hired by United Artists purely for economic reasons. They can't afford him. So he moves over to Warner Brothers, which was the worst place for him to be before moving to Paramount and then just kind of hopping between studios for the rest of his career. That's how it ended up for him.
0: Yeah. And I mean, again, like I said, this is a journey I'm excited to take. I'm excited to sort of listen along as you're going on this journey,
1: I had one note that I made on this viewing, which is that I like that so much of this movie is irreverent women being
0: irreverent. It's something he's extremely good at. I mean, that is basically his Jeanette McDonald movies are that.
1: It was such a shock to me because this film is such a kind of, I think partially because Mary Pickford did such a good job of disowning it. The film has kind of a muted reputation nowadays. And that seems to have really started to turn around after the restoration, which is makes sense but yeah i mean it's great
0: that restoration is surely going to hit blu-ray this year and once that happens i think it's going to be a major rediscovery for a lot of people
1: oh yes i hope it will i mean the rest of the Momot restorations too i mean there's four episodes this season that were given major new work this the marriage story lady windermere's fan forbidden paradise and all four are gorgeous now Finally, they're gorgeous. They're all tinted beautifully, especially Lady Windermere's fan. They actually had an incredible print to pull that from. Oh, nice. It's endlessly gorgeous. I can't wait for everyone to see all four of those.
0: Forbidden Paradise screened at the same time here at the Wisconsin Film Festival when uh, the restoration of Rosita did. It looked beautiful. And then I was like, I'm going to watch this, you know, to fill in the gap when I get to that point. It doesn't have to be the restoration or whatever. I found this janky ass 50 minute version of it that looks like it was run over by a tank and it's like do i actually want to rewatch watch this movie do i actually want to rewatch this movie or just live with my memories of the restoration
1: but yeah so thank you so much for coming on again tim you're going to be back in a while for the merry
0: widow i am so excited to talk about the merry widow with you not that i wasn't excited to talk about rosita which is a movie i love but merry widow is also a movie i love
1: I mean, The Merry Widow is, not to spoil my own feelings, it might be my second favorite, Lubitsch. It's it's not perfect, it's, but it's
0: it's flawless. It, <laughs> I mean, by no means are Lubitsch's postcode films bad, but there is a sense in which his last pre-code film is always going to feel like the moment that the wave crests. I think you get that feeling with Merry Widow.
1: Thank you so much, and we'll see you in... It'll be the very end of season four. So we'll see you at that point, Tim. Thanks again for, you know, coming along this wild ride.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Next week, Molly Raspberry joins us to discuss Charlie Chaplin's A Woman of Paris. Head over to ErnstCast.com for links to the various public domain films we will be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubage Do It? is a production of Moving Image Agency. Griffin Shield was our dialogue editor for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples.